Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. While you're turning there, just a little moral. If you happen to root for an NFL team that is south and east of us, know that you might end up dressing really sharply like these guys and paying for breakfast. Just a little moral for all of us. Actually, I am recording this sermon on Wednesday. You are getting a Wednesday message for Sunday. Uh, two and a half years ago, I said to my father, who was a career naval officer, who had commanded two ships and who served in the Vietnam War, that he ought to go on honor flight and I would drop what I am doing for the joy and honor of being his guardian. Well, we went yesterday, Saturday. He lives in Syracuse, so Friday I flew to Syracuse, and then Saturday we flew to Washington, D.C. I expected a lot of notice, but I think someone dropped out, and at the last minute they added my dad, which meant they added me, which meant I recorded the sermon on Wednesday. Well, let's ask God to guide our time. Dear Lord, we pray that as we look at your word, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that we might have a better understanding of your truth for our betterment and your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. No one knows. No one really knows how many people died at the Polish death camp called Auschwitz. We know that at least 1.3 million people were taken to Auschwitz. And we know that at least 1.1 million people, people made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, perished. We also know that all 1.3 million were dehumanized, treated, as something less than being made in the image of God. Their names stripped from them, dehumanized with numerals. I think of Pastor Maximilian Colby. Rather than being called Pastor Colby, he was merely 16770. This man went to Auschwitz. And he died. Poland was invaded by Nazi Germany in 1939. Immediately, Pastor Colby shut down the friary that he was in charge of. He dismissed the other pastors for their protection. But rather than no longer using the friary, he actually hid up to 3,000 people, including 2,000 Jews, that were wanted by Nazi Germany. Eventually he was found out, he was arrested, and unbelievably he was released. He was warned never to do it again. But he feared God much more than he feared man. And again he used the friary to hide several thousand Jews. You can read about his story on a website of Auschwitz 
or you can read about it at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Yad Vashem means a place in the name taken from Isaiah 56 verse 5 that God gives all of us a place and a name. And if you've been to Yad Vashem, you know that it is surrounded by 10,000 trees, one tree representing each person who did something incredible to save the Jews from annihilation. One such tree belongs to Pastor Colby. As I said, he opened up the friary. He hid several thousand Jews. But eventually the Nazis became suspicious of him. And in May of 1941, they invaded the friary and he was arrested and sent to Auschwitz. Understand that the, na- the daily rations in Auschwitz was one cup of imitation coffee, a bowl of very thin, watery soup, and a slice of bread. Day after day, he got at the end of the line. In case they ran out, then others would eat and he would not. Those days that he got the food, He would eat some of it and then give it to the weakest among them. In the barracks at night, he would preach Christ crucified. He would preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the need for each person to accept Christ as Savior. He would ask, unbelievably, men who were witnessing 1.1 million humans perishing, he would ask them to forgive their tormentors. He modeled it on a regular basis. He would always stand in front and protect the weakest, and because of that, he was often beaten by his tormentors, and then he would forgive them. In June of 1941, something happened in his barracks. You may know the laws of Auschwitz. One of the laws was if anyone attempted to escape, 10 fellow prisoners from the same barracks would be put to death. Not only did one attempt to escape, but one actually escaped, and immediately the barracks was emptied in front of the commandant, Fritz, who was angry. He was enraged. This would go on his record. And so he demanded, that 10 men be put to death. Rather randomly, 10 men were called out, including a man, Franciscus, who who cried out, I have a wife, I have children. Immediately, Pastor Colby stepped forward. The commandant in rage said, what is this Polish pig doing in front of me? Colby said, I'm a pastor. I'm an old man. He was only 47. I don't have a wife or child. May I take his place? The commandant was astounded and agreed. And the 10 who were randomly chosen were sentenced to building 13. It was a building that, well, it was a starvation building. It was one for death. 30 days later, Colby and four others were still alive. 
And they were put to death by injection. And we hear an account like that. And we can't help but have the highest admiration, amazement, astonishment for a man like Pastor Colby. But Pastor Colby is not in heaven because of his self-sacrifice. He is in heaven because he believed in the total sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The payment, the atonement of Christ who went to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our sin that through him, through faith in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. I want to pick up in our text, and I want to read this account of Jesus as recorded in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul begins in verse 18 by saying the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's always been that way. I suspect until we get to eternity, it will always be that way. I think of 1844, Karl Marx, who made this statement, religion is the sigh of the people. The heart of a heartless world, the soul of the soulless conditions, it is the opiate of the masses. What he is saying is this. The cross is Pollyanna. It is foolishness. It is folly. I believe that it was more folly then than even it is today. I believe that because we have sanitized the cross. We don't mean to do that, but we have. We don't visualize the cross as something vile, as a means of execution. The cross is an emblem of our faith. It's a symbol of hope. It's a symbol of regeneration. And right it should be. We have sanitized the cross, though. Today we have a cross in back of me. Churches have crosses on steeples. Sometimes you have a cross in a covering for your Bible, you have a tat perhaps with a cross or a necklace with a cross or earrings with a cross, and it's a symbol of hope. It's an emblem of our faith, and right it should be. 
But we have to understand that that's not how it came across in the first century. The cross was a vile, cruel, despicable means of execution. Let me attempt to contextualize the cross. I think of capital punishment. Capital punishment today is legal in 29 states at the federal level and the military. 21 states have outlawed capital punishment, including Wisconsin in 1853. In fact, we're the only state ever to put only one person, John McCaffrey, to death from a state or federal position. Now we think of the cross. It's just a, a vile means of execution. But again, we've sanitized it, so allow me to contextualize and say, how would you feel this morning if you came in and behind me was an electric chair? Or on the steeple was an electric chair? Or embroidered on the cover of your Bible was an electric chair? I don't mean this for shock value and no pun intended. I don't mean to be irreverent or crass at all. I just want us to understand the horror of the cross. It is a vile means of execution. That is the cross. Now, if I were to ask you this question this morning, I wonder what you would say. Since 1700, over the last 320 years, of the colonies and of the states, how many people do you believe have been legally put to death by state or federal or military government in the U.S.? I wonder what number you would come up with. The number is 15,760. Some of you might be surprised at how high the number is. I would suspect many of you are surprised that the number is not higher. So in 320 years, a little bit less than 16,000 people have been put to death by execution at the military, federal, and state level during 40 years in the first century in Israel, Rome put to death by crucifixion 30,000 men. 40 years, 30,000, 320 years, less than 16,000. I'm not trivializing either. I just wanted us to understand that today we see the cross as a symbol of our faith, a symbol of hope, a symbol of regeneration. They saw the cross as a means of vile execution. They probably knew family and friends who had lost someone to Rome crucified on the cross. No wonder Paul writes in verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly 
to Gentiles. With such a background, does it make sense now that Jesus would say, the word of the cross is folly, mora, from the word we derive moron, not the vulgar sense, but it means nonsensical. To the Jew or the Gentile, it is nonsensical that God would take on human flesh, never sin, go to the cross. Not a symbol of faith, but a vile means of execution. Be covered with our sin and pay the penalty of our sin that by faith in him we would receive eternal life. That's nonsensical. I think there are several reasons for it. First, the vileness of the cross itself, the vileness of the instrument. Second, what the cross symbolizes. The cross is an indictment on my character. The cross is an indictment on your character. The fact that God took on human flesh in the second person of the Trinity, lived a perfect life, but laid down his life as an atonement, a payment of our sin, is an indictment on our character. That the Messiah needs to pay for our sin is an indictment on us. We often say things like, man is basically good. Scripture says nonsense. Man is not basically good. In fact, of a, in fact, all of us are depraved. We rightly use the phrase total depravity. Don't be put off by the phrase. Total depravity does not mean that I'm as bad as I could be. Frankly, I could be a lot worse. Total depravity means that every cell in my body is tainted by sin. And out of the heart, the sin flows, leading eyes that do sinful things, mouths that say sinful things, ears that willingly hear sinful things, hands that do sinful things, feet that go to sinful places, a heart that leads to sin. That's what total depravity is all about. In fact, Paul put it this way. If you're feeling a bit melancholy this morning, this isn't going to help. Romans 3, 10 to 18. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Or 1 John 1, 8, 9. If we say that we have not sinned, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing because it's an indictment on us. Man is not basically good. 
Man is tainted with sin and in desperate need of a redeemer, of redemption, of regeneration, of taking this dead soul and making it alive through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember Matthew chapter 16? It's towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a time when he's going to be heading to Jerusalem and he's beginning to tell his disciples, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer. The Son of Man needs to suffer. He needs to die. He needs to pay the penalty of sin. Let me read verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And he's talking to the 12 and then Peter speaks up. And you and I know that Peter is not only one of the twelve, he's one of the three. He's really one of the two, isn't he? It's, it's Peter and John. And in fact, Peter will lead the church in Jerusalem someday. And then James. So he's a, he's a big deal. And so we would expect that Peter would say, oh man, thank you, Jesus. If you didn't go to the cross, if you didn't pay the penalty of sin, we would all be toast. But that's not what verse 22 says. It says, Peter took him aside and said, by no means, Lord. You're not doing that, Lord. Never mind the fact, by the way, that it's an oxymoron to call Jesus Lord and then tell him he's wrong. Do you remember what Jesus says in verse 23? He says, get behind me, Satan. It's probably not a good day when Jesus is calling a person Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's what the text says. You see, Peter is envisioning a military messiah. He knows that The collective boot of Rome is on the throat of every Jew. And he wants a Messiah who will overthrow the Romans, bring freedom to the Jews, usher in the golden day of Israel. And instead, Jesus is is talking about going to Jerusalem, suffering and dying as a payment of sin. And Peter can't handle it. In fact, it takes Peter a long time to catch on. You remember in John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. It really means olive press. You take the olives and you press and squeeze out the liquid. That's what will happen to Jesus. He will be pressed in the olive grove and his blood will be spilled for us. And so, remember, Peter's supposed to be praying, and he's sleeping, and then he awakens, and the high priest and some soldiers come, and Peter still has him in mind, not a crucified Messiah, but a military Messiah, so he pulls his stubby sword, his Makaria. And you know Peter, he's a real hero. He sees some soldiers, he sees some high priests, so he goes after the servant of the high priest and lops off that guy's ear. Take that, buddy. He's still looking for a military Messiah. But after the death of Christ, 
and in the grave for three days and the resurrection and then the ascension into heaven. God's Spirit leads Peter to write First and Second Peter. Let me just read chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 24. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, with the result that, with the purpose that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. The cross is folly, is folly to those who are perishing, but to we who know the power of the cross, it is the message of salvation. One author playing off of the slogan, Ram Tough, says, no one would think to tout the product, Lamb Tough. But that's exactly it, isn't it? It's Lamb Tough. So that John looks up and says, Behold, in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet, for the unbeliever, the cross is folly. It's, it's folly to those who are perishing. Or in verse 20, it says, The wise, the scribe, the baiter of this Age, they struggle with the cross. The cross symbolizes salvation. And, and it doesn't for most. The cross was a vile means of execution. The cross was an indictment on our character. And frankly, the cross is too simple. We want to participate. What's my role? What do I do? How do I Come alongside, be synergistic, work with Jesus for my salvation. Maybe I go under the waters of baptism. Or, or maybe I do some good works. Or maybe I be good enough or I, I participate enough in the things of God that I earn my way to heaven. And I've got to ask myself, if I were in the presence of Einstein, would he be impressed with my mind? Pfft, hardly. If I were in the presence of Michelangelo, would he be impressed with my crayon drawings? Hardly. And I am in the presence of a holy God, perfect in every way. Is he somehow impressed? With my good works? Hardly. But yet we try, don't we? We try and somehow earn our part. And God says no. Except the full work of Christ on the cross who paid the penalty of our sin. You say, well, maybe I got to just do some confirmation and maybe give a big donation. Well, confirmation is, is good. It's head knowledge. But head knowledge won't get me into the pearly gates. And a big donation might be an act of worship, but it's not an act of salvation. Besides, Psalm 50 says that I don't even own anything, and neither do you. God owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he's just loaning us stuff to be good stewards. 
of what he owns. Paul says we preach Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified. And yet we have a history of denying the great acts of God, the creative acts of God, the creative acts of redemption, even the creative acts of creation. I think about an article that was written in the Wall Street Journal by Eric Metaxas. Maybe you were reading his book on Luther. He's a Yale-educated, New York Times best-selling author. He wrote an article for the New York Times in which he talked about the creation of God and, and how we deny it. He noted in 1966 that Carl Sagan said that there is or there exist 10 octillion stars. It's like a one with 28 zeros. That's how many stars are out there. And then he said that there would be a septillion number of stars, that is a one with 24 zeros, that could perhaps have a planet that could sustain life. In other words, Carl Sagan says, there ought to be a lot of stars that have planets that sustain life. And so Congress began to give money to the pursuit of stars that have planets that sustain life, and they stopped that pursuit in 1993, and then it was carried on by private donations. Now Carl Sagan told us that we really only need two things. We need the right kind of star and again, he said that a one with 24 zeros, that's how many of those right kind of stars exist. And the planet needs to be a certain distance from that star. So he postulated that there would be a lot of them. But in our search, we have discovered that Carl Sagan is not right. That rather than two criteria, we know of 200 criteria of a certain kind of star with a planet a certain distance away. But it's more than that. Sometimes it requires other bodies. For instance, you need a large planet like Jupiter that has its own gravitational field that draws asteroids away from the life-sustaining planet into Jupiter's atmosphere. You need a Jupiter and the right kind of star, and the right distance, and oxygen, all sorts of things, 200 criteria and growing, in order to sustain life. And yet here we are. Here we are. And it's clear in my mind it's God. And yet that is folly. That is folly to the unbeliever. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. In fact, in that same article published by the Wall Street Journal a few years ago, he said astrophysicists tell us that all the conditions for creation to suddenly occur is so minute that it would be like me taking this coin, flipping it, it's tails, and flipping it 10 times one with 10 zeros. 
and always, without exception, getting a tail. Secular astrophysicists tell us that is the likelihood of the creation of the universe. You know, the Bible says God created it. We have a way of dismissing the creative work of God from creation or the re-regeneration work of God through salvation. Scripture says that it's folly. It's folly for those who are perishing. But for we who know Christ, it's the power of salvation. So what's our response? First, Please make sure today that you know Christ. That you're not placing your faith in something you, I, we try and do to somehow impress God, to somehow get into the pearly gates. Not confirmation, not baptism, not good works, not a big donation. Not on the tales of family that believe, not by church attendance, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Christ, that he paid the penalty, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, was covered with our sin, that through him, through faith in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. If you've never received Christ, won't you at this moment, by faith, say, forgive me of my sin. And the power of your spirit, help me to turn from my sin and towards righteousness, grant me eternal life. And second, for we who have already accepted Christ, we have the joy, we have the privilege, we have the obligation of telling others about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be ye reconciled to God. And so we just need to tell others, that salvation is not in us, it's in Christ. Or maybe we bring unbelieving friends or family or coworkers, neighbors to church and say, hey, would you come with me to church and learn something about this God and we will have the privilege of telling them about Jesus. The third thing I want to take away from the text is this. As I share the gospel of Christ, some are going to say, no thanks, Jeff. Because the gospel is folly to the perishing. It's foolishness to the unbeliever. The wise and the scribe, the intellectual of this day, may say, I'll take a pass. And I've got to be prepared for that. But some, maybe many, will come to know Jesus. If you have ever led someone to the Lord you know that it is a great, great day. It is something that makes your heart sing to see someone pass from unbelief to belief, from spiritual death to spiritual life. It is better than chocolate cake. It is magnificent. And we have the privilege of telling others about Jesus. Some will say no, but some will receive Christ. And finally, we need to resist the temptation that is in our society 
to water down the cross of Christ, to deny that it is through the shed blood of Jesus. For without the shed blood of Jesus, there is no remission of sin. Denominations that are wayward are minimizing the cross and the blood of Christ. Some songs are minimizing the cross and the shed blood of Christ. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power, the power of salvation to all who believe. Let's pray. Father God, if somebody here today does not know Jesus, I pray that by faith they would say, yes, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Become my Savior. Help me to turn from my sin, empowered by your Spirit. And for we who know Christ, may we never be ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of salvation for all who believe. And set on our hearts and our minds somebody that we can share the gospel with, that we can invite to church, that we can tell about salvation by faith in Jesus. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.